Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Voters say yes to childcare centers in city parks. I think we're going to see some slots open in 2023. Uh, we're, we're emphasizing this very, very quickly. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. How will San Diego make good on the promise of housing as a human right? That means that we should be taking active measures to ensure that folks have every opportunity to live in San Diego in decent, stable housing. Some reasons why Republicans struggled in the midterm elections. And a star-studded event this weekend at the Coronado Island Film Festival. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. (laughs) It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. San Diego voters have given strong approval to the idea of opening city parks and rec facilities to childcare businesses. More than 60% of voters said yes to Measure H. The ability to lease space from the city could be a lifeline for childcare providers. The number of childcare options in San Diego has declined since the shutdowns and uncertainty of the pandemic. Now the city has to develop the process involved in leasing out space to providers. And joining me is San Diego City Councilman Raul Campillo. And Councilman, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Did you expect Measure H to get such strong support from voters? I absolutely did expect it to have such strong support. And the reason for that is we hear from so many families the difficulty they have in getting childcare. Uh, you know, it's, it's expensive, it's limited on top of all their other costs that they have. It is a top priority of theirs. And they've been asking us at the city to deliver this service for them in some way and at least make it easier for private companies to be able to have childcare slots. Uh, people have to wait eight, nine, 10 months, even longer to get their children at childcare. So I had a sense that this 
this was going to pass overwhelmingly, and the numbers show that it did. Now, this vote changes the city charter to allow child care facilities at city parks. Have any possible locations been identified? Yes, there have. Uh, early on, before we even put this measure on the ballot, uh, I asked our Department of Real Estate to do an analysis of all city-owned land for what could potentially be used for child care centers. And they identified 72 sites, and 42 of the 72 are parks and recreation centers throughout the city. And there are parks and rec centers that are potentially child care uh, usable in every single district. So this is going to be a positive impact across the entire city. And so the measure is changing the city charter so that we can actually move forward with having a request for bids from childcare companies to uh, outfit a recreation center uh, in your neighborhood to be able to be used for childcare. Now, many child care centers have been threatened by rising rents for, for the commercial properties that they're in. Will city leases be less expensive? We have a purchasing and contracting policy that makes sure that leases fall within certain legal requirements. Uh, but what we've seen is that we have usable city land for this type of amenity that parents are looking for. Similar to the way that the city and county last month passed a resolution saying we would look into using public land to build housing that will be affordable. Similar mindset is coming forward here. Uh, so I can't discuss or opine on what those leases might be, but we definitely are looking to make sure that taxpayer dollars are protected that legal requirements are met, but fundamentally providing the option for child care providers to have this space uh, that would be potentially cheaper than building their own facilities uh, or renting out for-profit facilities that might charge them more. We're, we're going to make sure we protect tax dollars on this as well, but we were hoping that provides more slots, which will drive down the price of it across the, uh, across the entire city. Will the city council have to approve each of these leases? We have specific requirements on different leases. So if it's a lease that is three years or less, typically the mayor's office can approve such a lease. But when we're looking at childcare uh, outfitting of recreation centers, uh, we know that those types of uh, improvements and investments in the infrastructure typically aren't going to lead to a three, year, three years or less lease. Those are going to be longer term leases, several years beyond that, I'm sure, because otherwise we're not going to see child care providers want to take on that risk. So I anticipate that what will happen is the leases that will come before us will be longer than that three year threshold, wherein the city council does have to approve it. So if it's less than three years, the mayor's office can approve it. And if it's an, if it's an extension of an, a lease that's already in place, it does have to come to the city council. So uh, I, I anticipate that each of these leases will come to the city council. In one of your statements, Councilman, about this measure, you said allowing child care centers in city parks would be good for both city employees and the public. And it made me wonder, will city employees get first choice for spots in these new centers? That has not been discussed, and that has not been the intention of this at all. Uh, we do know that to attract uh, qualified uh, workers to work for the city, we have thousands of vacancies. Child care is one of those benefits that they have been asking for, and that's all part of the budget negotiations uh, with their labor unions. But at this point, uh, we do not have any intent to set aside any amount for employees, but we do look for ways to expand that benefit to our employees. Uh, right now, I'm more concerned about analyzing the specific parks and recreation centers that can have child care slots so that families that live in those neighborhoods will look to a nearby park where they can drop their child off before work and be able to pick up after work without having to drive way out of the way uh, from where they live. Now, the city bureaucracy can move pretty slowly when it comes to the details of measures like this. When would you like to see the first child care centers open in city parks? 
oh, I would love to see them open uh, within the next year. So this is going to become part of our city charter as soon as it's certified by our city clerk. We are already working on requests for proposals to go out to the public for child care providers to tell us what they would want to do in a parks and rec center. Some will require more investment and improvements, others probably less so. Uh, but I think we can really work on this fast and see some slots open up in 2023. Uh, of course, when it comes to other other places like libraries and office buildings where we could put childcare, that might take a little bit longer. But right now, these parks and recreation centers are situated right in the middle of people's neighborhoods amongst homes where parents are looking for that short drive to a childcare center. So I think we're going to see some slots open in 2023. Uh, we're, we're emphasizing this very, very quickly. I've been speaking with San Diego City Councilman Raul Campillo, and thank you so much for taking the time and speaking with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much. With rents high, housing in short supply, and pandemic tenant protections gone, a movement is underway to increase renters' rights in San Diego. The City Council is considering a resolution calling housing a human right and proposing new regulations to protect renters from losing their homes. Some of the proposals would require landlords to pay tenants for displacement or no-fault evictions. But many rental property owners say they are not the problem and shouldn't have to bear the burden of San Diego's housing crisis. Joining me is San Diego City Council President Sean Ila Rivera, who has championed stronger protections for renters. And Councilman Ila Rivera, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. What does housing as a human right really mean? Is this an aspirational slogan or is the city prepared to put some teeth into it? I think that it's both aspirational and something that can, that can can have teeth applied to it. When a city council goes on the record by way of a resolution, um, we are inviting accountability. We're inviting accountability as individuals who vote in support of that resolution. We're inviting accountability as the legislative body for the city to do our best to adhere to the commitments made in that resolution. That means we should not be doing things that undermine the ability to create housing. We should not be doing things that create unnecessary vulnerabilities for those who are currently housed. That means that we should be taking active measures to ensure that folks have every opportunity to live in San Diego in decent, stable housing. What are some of the most pressing problems that San Diego renters are facing now? The number one issue that folks are facing, and I include myself in, in, in this conversation because I am a renter, along with a number of my colleagues on the council, uh, has to it stems from the lack of availability of, of, of apartments and, and rental housing, um, housing in general here in San Diego. There's comments made sometimes that maybe you just can't afford to live in San Diego. Maybe these, these people just, too many people want to live here. And I, I don't think that that's the city that we want to be, where we are dependent upon folks to do certain jobs during the day or in the evening, but we don't want to create a situation where they can actually live here. The rent is too high. People are consistently struggling to find a place that they can afford. But even if they do find that place, far too many people are receiving notices that they have to leave their apartment despite paying the rent, abiding by the terms of their lease as a result of no-fault evictions. And San Diego has lagged behind um, in in updating our tenant protections. And we have a nearly 20-year-old ordinance that is simply not getting the job done anymore. You've been speaking out about your own experience as a renter and a crisis that involved your parents several years ago. Will you share that with us? 
Yeah. Um, you know, for most of my life, uh, my family and I have been renters. And, um, you know, that means that we are subject to, you know, the, the various conditions that renters face. Increases in rent, sometimes when they're unaffordable. Um, the whims of a landlord, uh, the power imbalances that sometimes exist, that, that do exist between a landlord and their tenant. Um, and then evictions, you know, are part of the the experience for, for many renters, and that's been part of our experiences as well. Um, you know, there's memories from when I was younger of, you know, these, these hur- this hurried move during my eighth grade year, and, you know, that was certainly somewhat traumatic. Um, and then, you know, more recently, my family um, faced a situation when they were forced out of their place in Orange County and, um, you know, me trying to do the best that I could. This was back in, in 2015. Um, I wasn't making much money and, and couldn't provide a lot of financial assistance, but, you know, I, I, I found a different apartment to move into myself and move them into my my apartment in Golden Hill. And um, unfortunately, that apartment uh, changed ownership and their rent increased significantly uh, to the point where they could no longer keep up with the payments. Uh, that led to them needing to find another place to live and me having an eviction on my record and the impacts that uh, that has on, 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 my, on my credit. That's part of the experience of, of, of renting for a lot of people. And um, you know, certainly knowing the long-term effects that eviction can have, both tangible and intangible effects, um, certainly motivates me to want to make that experience as, as few and far between as possible for other folks here in San Diego. Now, the council recently had a tenant protection ordinance workshop. I'm wondering, what kinds of stories did you hear from renters? Yeah, we've been hearing stories since I was running for office and throughout our time in office. But obviously, as we've worked on this more and more with the community, we've heard more and more stories. A couple that stand out to me involve, one, an entire apartment building where the folks in that community were served no-fault eviction notices just weeks before the holidays. Um, 100 families um, just weeks before the holidays who were all paying the rent, who were all abiding by the terms of their lease, being told that they needed to get out. Now only two of the families who were there um, remain. They've they've you know done their best to try to stay, um, despite being trying to be forced out of their homes. And then the other other stories that really stand out to me are about seniors, uh, seniors who again are are following the rules. They're paying the rent. They're not violating the lease. They're living on fixed incomes. And some some of their landlords have been pretty uh, brazen in, in sharing with them that. You know, yeah, you you haven't done anything wrong, but I can I can make a lot more money with somebody else, and so you need to go. I'm gonna uh, make some upgrades here, and then I'm gonna be able to charge twice as much for this apartment. We are in a housing and homelessness crisis here in San Diego, and we can't simply watch situations like this occur and not take action. What are some of the protections the city is considering extending to renters? The first thing I think is important to note is that San Diego is again, lagging behind other cities when it comes to tenant protections. We have a nearly 20-year-old ordinance on the books. The state policy was updated in the last couple of years, but San Diego was exempted for that from that because of our, our old uh, ordinance. 
And we want to make sure that we, at a minimum, come up to the state standard, but also provide some, you know, a few additional protections. We want folks who are following the rules, who are paying their rent, to have ample notice that they're going to have to move if that situation does arise, and given a real opportunity to keep their families here in San Diego and to not fall into homelessness. We want to ensure that you know that family that's doing everything they're supposed to do, if they're served a no-fault eviction notice, they're not simply forced out and have to come up with you know eight thousand, ten thousand dollars to move in and to pay for moving expenses. And you know, again, as a result of that, find themselves living in their car or having to move from San Diego. One of the, I think, very important changes that we want to make, and I think we're making progress on in our conversations with some of the folks from the uh, uh, rental industry, is ensuring that our protections kick in on the first day of someone's tenancy. Right now, believe it or not, San Diegans have to wait two years before their protections kick in. And that means that someone can go through all the expenses of moving you know, the thousands that it costs to pay for a moving truck and pay for movers or to bring your family over to help you move upfront money that you need to pay when you move in, all of those costs. And then two months later, despite having broken no rules, be told that they have to move again. And I think most of us would agree, almost everyone would agree that that's not right and that people should have their protections on the first day that they move in. And we, we want to make sure that, that that is the case here in San Diego. Um, and then the last thing is providing a little bit of a, additional security and stability to seniors and people with disabilities, the folks who are most vulnerable of not only falling into homelessness, but of the consequences of falling into homelessness. We are making progress on that front as well. Now, of course, the flip side to renters' rights is that owning property is not free. Landlords have bills to pay, too. So how do you balance the needs of renters with the rights of property owners? I think the first thing to point out here is, in the proposal that we've brought forward, we are not talking about folks who are not paying their rent on time. I understand that that folks need to recover their cost when they're running a business, and they should have an opportunity to make some profit. Uh, but there's also responsibilities that come with making, with, you know, with, with running certain businesses. And when, when your business involves something that has a huge impact on the health and safety of those who are interacting with your business, and in this case, housing, there should be an understanding that um, there will be some rules applied. And I certainly want to be empathetic to the challenges of running a business. We want there to be clarity because. Uh, landlords also do deserve to know what the rules are and that they're not going to be changed on a whim. It's important to note as well that we've had folks with property management and um, apartment ownership experience as part of the working group that uh, helped create the, the, the framework. So we are certainly not ignoring the voices of, of property owners, but right now there's not only a huge power imbalance between a renter and their landlord, but some very, very outdated rules that bad actors are exploiting. And here's the problem when bad actors exploit rules with something as important as housing. This isn't like someone's just out a few bucks. It can be the difference between life and death, between a family having a roof over their head and not. And we can't simply accept that bad actors exploiting two lax rules is a part of everyday life here in San Diego when we have the opportunity to create better policy that will ensure that more folks have housing stability without being over, overly onerous on those who are who are um, renting their homes. Now, what needs to happen now to move these tenant protections forward? Yeah, so we had an important conversation at council on on Monday, 
And that conversation centered around a framework that our office put together with a variety of advocates and experts. The next step is continuing those conversations and bringing back an action item for the council to consider. And we immediately got to work in having those follow-up conversations. We listened closely to what our colleagues had to say. We listened closely to what the advocates for both tenants and for landlords had to say. And um, we are acting with real urgency. And that urgency stems from knowing that we cannot solve the homelessness crisis here in San Diego without providing more protections for renters. I've been speaking with San Diego City Council President Sean Elo Rivera, and thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. (laughs) It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet when you're hungry for information and entertainment. You go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. A red wave is how many pundits predicted Tuesday's election would pan out. Some polls predicted a surge in Republican voting power that would deliver resounding defeats to all facets of Democratic power on Election Day. What happened was not exactly that. And as votes in many key races are still being counted, San Diego Union-Tribune columnist Michael Smullins writes that there are many takeaways from this election that offer a glimpse into the near future of American politics. He joins us now. Michael, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on. So Republicans are still poised to take the House, while a special runoff election could determine control of the Senate. How did either party perform in this election against expectations? Well, I think you can tell by just the reactions of the two parties, as you say, that the Democrats almost certainly are going to lose the House. They may even still lose the Senate. They're acting like they won. Uh, They were expecting, we all were expecting, the Republicans were expecting that the Democrats were going to get steamrolled by, as you mentioned, this, you know, vaunted red wave, and it just didn't appear. Um, Democrats performed a lot more strongly than people thought. So it is sort of odd uh, that they're so really overjoyed at keeping what appears to be, keeping their losses to a minimum that will affect the dynamics in Washington, even if Republicans hold the House. Uh, the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade's constitutional right to abortion really seemed to galvanize the Democratic voter base. Do you think we saw that actually play out in this election? Absolutely. And Jade, it was just the darndest thing. Uh, I think a lot of us were lulled and got... Uh, a little confused or or missed something along the line. When Roe v. Wade went down with the Supreme Court decision in June, I mean, it was a political explosion. Uh, Kansas, as red a state as there is practically, uh, voted heavily against uh, a ballot measure to, um, you know, basically outlaw abortion. 
So that was a real indication. Yes, Democrats were, uh, you know, not enthused, but certainly energized, concerned about that, along with their allies. Then along the way, that seemed to maybe just fell out of the media. Um, some polls suggested that, that abortion wasn't quite the driver that it had been earlier. And folks, were, I think, were lulled into thinking, aha, it is all about the economy. Well, the economy, of course, was a huge issue, particularly inflation in this election, and that helped Republicans. But as we are finding out from uh, exit polling, uh, the abortion access was a huge issue for a lot of people. And yeah, that really did help drive folks. And like I said, I think a lot of us were lulled into thinking maybe it just sort of faded as an issue. It clearly did not. Democratic politicians on all levels framed this election by saying that democracy was on the ballot. Did voters see it that way? That one's a little tougher. I, I think so. But I think in the larger sense, where Republicans were hurt was certainly by that. But they had a, a lot of candidates, I think, moderates uh, and even some Republicans viewed as uh, too extreme on abortion, on democracy, um, on election denial. And I think that that played into things. Uh, you know, it's not an absolute. But if you look around uh, the, the country, moderate Republicans uh, who were a little distant from Donald Trump uh, tended to do better than his candidates and um, the more extreme candidates. Now, again, that's not the rule necessarily. There's still a lot to play out, as you mentioned, that votes are still being counted. So I'm sure we'll see, uh, you know, some perhaps uh, some of the more extreme candidates on the Republican Party side winning. Election denial remained a major rallying point for several Republicans. Some major election deniers were handed some resounding defeats across the nation. What do you think this means for this portion of the Republican Party? Well, I, I think it's actually, you know, we're acting like the Republican Party you know, took a drubbing and to a degree they, they did on ex- the expectations front they still will have certain powers and, and like we said, probably control or at least have the majority in the House. But I think a lot of you know, longtime Republicans that are unhappy with where the party has gone are not unhappy to see what's, what's occurred here because uh, they want to get the party back into a different competitive level on issues they think worked and away from the extremism. A lot of the, the, the not elder states persons in the party, but uh, mainstream Republicans just said Biden won the election. Let's move on from that. That's dragging them down. And uh, you know, so I, like I said, I think that a lot of them are, are, are not unhappy to see those election deniers uh, lose. Uh, as we know, those some some will be in office. As we mentioned earlier, you know, pundits had it wrong. News organizations had it wrong. Even the Cook report had the predictions wrong. Where do you think the disconnect is? Well, I think that, that we, we always, you know, it, it's happened throughout history. <laughs> a lot of analysis is, is wrong, I think, with the 24-7 news cycle um, uh, that, that we get caught up in a lot of echo chambers. And, um, you know, some polls weren't that far off, but uh, I think that, that the expectations, the history of midterm elections uh, certainly drove a lot of people to the conclusions that it was going to be a big Republican uh, year, a big Republican election. But you know, we have to wait till the votes are counted. And we, as we've learned in these last few election cycles, uh, the, a lot of the usual political rules just don't apply. And so we try to be cautious, but sometimes we're not. All right. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune columnist Michael Smolens. Michael, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on again, Jed. 
The approval of Prop 28 guarantees as much as a billion dollars from the state budget every school year for arts education without raising taxes. Starting next fall, that means six million students will have access to music, theater, dance, or painting. Russ Sperling is Director of Visual and Performing Arts in San Diego Unified. He is a veteran arts administrator who estimates his district will get an additional $15 million every year. He spoke with KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. Here's their conversation. Let's just begin with the historic nature of this funding. It really is historic, isn't it? This amount of money is incredibly historic. The, other, the eyes of the nation are, are, are on us. I'll tell you what my Facebook has been like, oh my God, how can we get that in North Carolina? How can we get this in Texas? Because we are going to be the leaders in the nation uh, in arts education. And when we say funding and arts for all, that's literal. Every school in California, public school. Yes. Austin Butner, who is former superintendent for LUSD, he, he basically wrote this. He realized as superintendent that he didn't have the resources to really give to schools what they needed in order to make sure that every student had access to a quality arts education. Yes, the money goes to the school sites. Every school site in California, in public schools, they are going to have access to this money. For schools that have a, a Title I population, they're going to get additional funding with the recognition that there needs to be more funding for uh, school sites like that to, to for, for equity. Not every school has the same need for arts programming. Some may already have significant programs. Is that right? That's correct. The, and the decisions are site-based that... Um, from a district office or a state perspective, we're not saying you have to offer this class. We're saying to the principals and the communities, what arts do you want to see at your, your school? And that should be in response to what the community wants. So, Russ, one of your colleagues is Ann Finnell. She's the K-12 music program manager for San Diego Unified. She had this to say about the impact on students with this funding. I think of the students who might not feel that their voice hasn't been heard because they've not had an opportunity to express themselves. And then suddenly with the arts, their voice will get heard or seen in movement or across the stage or with a visual or with a, with a sound of music. But our whole thing is education should find every child and every child should be a part of education. So what do you think about that? There is also a social emotional impact to this. It's not just about talent. Through the arts, MG, that is where students can really find themselves. And certainly at this particular moment in time, coming out of the pandemic, we need to give students that opportunity to really explore who they are. You know, sometimes theater kids don't know that they're theater kids until they're given that chance on stage and they try it out and they realize, oh, my gosh, this is me. And we haven't been able to necessarily give that opportunity. And we're and we're going to be able to do that now. The good news is we're starting this now, but this this funding is going to last. It's going to last forever. The voters would have to actually vote against it to take it away. This campaign had several big names attached to it. In order to get it past everybody from Barbara Streisand to John Lithgow, and Tony nominated an Emmy Award winning actress, Cheryl Lee Ralph. Here's what she had to say about the victory. Maybe they will keep coming to school because they're going to have dance class, because they're going to have hip hop, rap. I mean, it might not be everything to everybody else, but some of these kids like that. 
Maybe one of them will write the new Hamilton musical. Come on, I see great things coming out of this vote, and I am excited. Attaching big names to this proposition, did that help, do you think, Russ? I think that when people went into the voting box, they said, arts and music, this doesn't raise my taxes. Like, would I vote against kittens? <laughs> you know, it was kind of, I think I would think it was kind of that easy. I think it was really important at the beginning for legitimacy's sake that there were many voices, not just celebrities, but um, people in education, people in arts education that said, yes, this is needed. Uh, we're not going to be able to, to make a difference uh, for students in California without Prop 28. What does the future of California look like for the arts now that this has passed? Oh, I think this is a new renaissance for California. I think that starting in the fall, we are going to have students involved in arts education, music, theater, dance, visual art, media arts, and they're going to be creating, they're going to be thinking creatively, solving problems, they're going to be working collaboratively. And this is going to change the student bodies across the state, and that is going to create the dynamic employment force that we need in this this creative economy and in the entertainment capital of the world. And uh, we're, we're, we're going to be catching up <laughs> for what we, we, we should have been doing. And we were doing it, just not at this level. I just want to be clear. We're, I think we're about to enter a renaissance. That was Russ Sperling, Director of Visual and Performing Arts in San Diego Unified. He was speaking with KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. Mexican artist Hugo Crosthwaite is being honored this weekend in Washington, D.C. His portrait of Dr. Anthony Fauci, head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, is set to be unveiled at the National Portrait Gallery today. KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans tells us how Crosthwaite used stop-motion animation to capture some of the defining moments of Fauci's career. Okay, well... Let's talk about art. <laughs> Let's talk about art. In his airy Rosarito studio, border artist Hugo Crossfate spent months meticulously drawing and photographing, composing a narrative portrait of Dr. Anthony Fauci as he went. The finished work is a five-minute stop-motion animation film. It's more than just a portrait of Fauci. The animation gave Crossfate a chance to tell a bigger story. Doing that portrait had this opportunity not just to uh, do the portrait of a man, but do a portrait of this particular moment that we're living in, you know, this pandemic. The work is an extraordinary look at someone who has been the face of science in America during the pandemic. The animation is intricately, stunningly rendered and powerful to watch. The film is set to music from composer Marilu Salinas, plus Ramona Mezqua from Tijuana Electronic Ensemble, Nortec. It opens with gloomy, suspenseful music and a drawing of Fauci, pensive, at the height of the COVID pandemic. His career is bookended by crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic today, and the HIV-AIDS epidemic in the 80s. Crossfit shows a stark contrast in attitudes toward public health and science, now and then. They were fighting for their lives. They were fighting 
for medicines. They were fighting for for government involvement in you know to save them from you know to help them uh, deal with this pathogen. And then with the COVID nineteen pandemic, kind of the opposite happened. No, we have a vaccine, we have the medicines, we have the treatment, but then it's a population that rises against those things. Crossway began drawing as a kid, killing time in his father's curio shop in Rosarito. Then, while people watching along Tijuana's busy streets and plazas, he drew elaborate narratives, whether invented or reflective of a human condition. In Fauci's portrait, the narrative rises from the American response to the pandemic. In a moment where truth was being denied, you know, and alternative facts were coming up, you know, and, and he became this personification of science, of real fact, of, of, of truth. Immediately I knew that the narrative that I wanted to tell with this animation would be these two antagonistic forces, no? It would be science against superstition, you know, truth against lies. The portrait depicts Fauci several times over the years. There's an iconic moment where a social media thumbs up icon hovers at the presidential podium. Fauci in the background looks worn down. To make a stop-motion video, Crossweight does it all by hand. He draws a detail, snaps a picture, draws another detail, and repeats. The effect is full of movement. As figures emerge and wobble with tiny shifts of the camera angle, the animations buzz with life. It's this process where one detail leads to the next and leads to the next, and then I'm, I'm composing narrative, kind of like a writer would, would, or a poet would compose a poem, you know, where you string together words and you're creating a narrative. That's the same process I use with, with my work, with my drawing. It ends with a recent likeness of Fauci, but along the way, there are healthcare workers, protesters, sick people connected to ventilators, and someone receiving a vaccine, all elements of Fauci's legacy. A hundred years from now, nobody's going to know who Dr. Fauci is. Nobody's going to know who I am. Nobody's, you know, names and places get forgotten. But stories are universal, no? Like, uh, we've had the story of, of science fighting against superstitions since there's been science, no? Julia Dixon-Evans, KPBS News. You can view an excerpt of Hugo Crossthwaite's animation at kpbs.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. The Coronado Island Film Festival kicked off its seventh year last night with Empire of Light at the Village Theater. This weekend, film critic Leonard Malton returns to host the festival's Industry Awards at the Hotel del Coronado's Crown Room. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando spoke with Malton about the festival. Leonard, you are involved with the Coronado Film Festival, so tell me how you originally got involved with them. A phone call some seven years ago asking if I would be interested in participating in the launch of a new film festival on Coronado Island with a gala dinner at the Hotel del Coronado, which my wife and I love. That made it very appealing right away, and as we got more involved, we met lots and lots of nice people, and it was clear that the community was ready to embrace this idea. So it was hard to say no. And you are now hosting the Gala Awards. And to start with, you actually have an award named after you, the Leonard Malton Award. So what did you want that award to symbolize or to go to? Well, that was the festival's idea, not, not mine. But it, it, was, it was meant as a compliment. I take it as such. 
it just means the uh, honoring somebody who's done something worthwhile in the area of film. And this year, its recipient is Ron Shelton, whose film Bull Durham will be screened. Well, you got something to write with? Good. It's time to work on your interviews. My interviews? What do I got to do? You're going to have to learn your cliches. You're going to have to study them. You're going to have to know them. They're your friends. Write this down. We got to play them one day at a time. Got to play. It's pretty boring. You of course, know. it's boring. That's the point. Write it down. One day, day time. All right, I'm just happy to be here. Hope I can help the ball club. I know. Write it down. Uh, I have a special fondness for writer directors. The fact that they're directing their own script, their own story, means I think that they have an even greater commitment telling that story. And he's done that over and over again in White Men Can't Jump and Tin Cup, Blaze, and uh, other sports-related films. And one of the other awards is going to be the Legacy Award going to Gina Davis. And this seems to go beyond just her work on screen, but also to acknowledge who she is and what she's doing. As the Academy did, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences gave her honorary Oscar for the significant work she has done promoting gender equality. It's either ironic or fitting, depending on how you look at it, that this is the co-star of Thelma and Louise, who uh, has had her own awakening, has raised her own consciousness to the level that she feels it incumbent upon her to lend a helping hand in terms of guidance, in terms of practical answers, practical solutions to an ongoing problem. Another one of the awards that will be given out is called the Cultural Icon Award, which is going to the wonderful Jacqueline Bissett. Yes, and she has a new film called Lauren and Rose, which is actually a, essentially a two-character piece, very intimate little film that is a perfect showcase for her, playing an older actress and dealing candidly with that fact. You know, the actress Rama Rose, for some people... Cinema means something superficial and glamorous. But I think it is the mirror of the world. Here's a woman who was known originally and still known in many quarters for her, her, her beauty, which is striking. But she's more than just a, an attractive woman. She has honed her skills as a screen actress over many years' time. And... Uh, hasn't had as many opportunities to show her uh, her chops, as it were. And the festival will also be showing one of her older films, Day for Night, which is a lovely valentine to filmmaking itself. That's exactly what it is. So here's a woman who's worked with Francois Truffaut, among many, many others, who can tell us firsthand about working with one of the great masters of 20th century cinema. And... Being part of a film festival, what is it about a festival that you think offers filmgoers a different experience than just going to the multiplex? What I love about film festivals is the communal aspect of it. Uh, it's not just seeing the film. It's seeing the film in the context of other films, in the context of being in a festival-going mode. I want to be carried away, swept away by the currents of that festival. I find that festivals make me more adventurous, more willing to try something 
that I don't know anything about. And then talking about it. The other half of the equation is talking about the films with the other people there. You, you, you come together for an experience and then discuss the experience. That's a key part of any festival. And you have been a film critic for a long time and seen a lot of changes go on. How do you feel about the current state of film criticism? Well, is there a current state of film criticism? I'm not sure that there is because it's been eclipsed by social media. There is no equivalent to Siskel and Ebert today. There are a lot of people spouting opinions, some of them professionally, some of them not, but enthusiastically, and some of them with great articulation and you know and intelligence and some of them not uh, it seems like most people don't care uh, this might my, my conclusion about reading or, or listening to professional film critics they'd rather just go online and register their opinions and uh, bat them back and forth with other people who agree or disagree so it's not not what I'd call a, a growth area <laughs> And I also wanted to bring up something from your particular past, which is you appeared once in an absolutely glorious film by Peter Jackson called Forgotten Silver. It was a mockumentary, so you were playing yourself, but kind of poking fun at that whole sort of documentary format. And I just love the fact that you were willing to do that. Well, thank you. And you're one of the few people to bring up that title. Uh, it's not readily available. You can't stream it. And I don't think it was ever really released on DVD, let alone Blu-ray. And uh, I'm very fond of that film. Peter Jackson did a wonderful, wonderful job with this saga of a New Zealand silent film pioneer named Colin McKenzie. By 1908, after three years of development, Colin McKenzie had perfected a way to record synchronized sound with pictures. He just forgot one thing. All of his subjects talking were Chinese. And while he'd figured out a way to record them, he didn't think of making subtitles. It was his fatal flaw. When it aired on in prime time on New Zealand television, fooled a lot of people. And when they found out they had been had, there was great anger. Uh, he got a lot of blowback <laughs> from his fellow Kiwis over that. And thanks so much for talking with me. Well, my pleasure, and I hope maybe we'll run into you this weekend. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Leonard Malton. The Coronado Island Film Festival continues through Sunday with the Leonard Malton Industry Awards Gala taking place on Saturday. 